when it was rejected twice or in two different contexts, and I created the third context, we had to fight for two years to get it accepted by anybody and then another four years to get anywhere near making any money and then another two years to get ITV International to make the TV series. Perseverance. Mm, stick stick it. I mean, it. If you really, really believe in it, stick with it. If you pay somebody else to help with your SEO, here's a little hint. Uh, is if, it, if, if whatever they're doing doesn't serve one or more of understanding credibility or deliverability, they're doing something that isn't going to help. Mm. So basically, it's an easy way for you to say which one does it serve, and if they can't make a decent argument for it serving one or more of those pillars, tell them they're getting it wrong. Welcome to the Quest for Questions podcast and joining me today is someone who describes himself as a digital marketer, musician and a cartoon blue dog. After our conversation, I would more accurately call him uh, the first per professional double bass player who had no idea how to play it, uh, the first digital nomad with an address between C and uh, post office, Mauritius, and finally the only person who can make brand SERP and SEO an exciting conversation topic for, for someone even outside of digital marketing. If you stick long enough, you will even learn a French word that better describes a person with drive. This is Conrad Yerba-Mate Addict, and here is an interview with one and only Jason Barnard. Enjoy. So welcome, Jason, to the Quest, <coughs> Quest for Questions podcast. And I'm excited to talk to you today. It's mostly going to be, I think, about uh, digital marketing, but there is also... Uh, some other topics like digital uh, nomadism and uh, and kind of living on desert islands and kind of going through a lot of different uh, careers uh, in your life. Uh, so maybe let's start first with um, with something that I read on your on your profile. Um, I think on Matchmaker. That's where we that's where we met. That sounds like a dating site, by the way, but it isn't. It's a, it's a bringing podcasters and guests together platform. <laughs> It's like a Tinder, but for podcast people. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good clarification. I forgot to, to mention, but that's where me and Jason met. And um, you know, I'm on the lookout for uncommon people, and I thought, you know, just looking at you, that you had a lot of like kind of uncommon things you did in your life. Uh, so I guess first thing we, we I would want to start with is that you mentioned that you were always part of like a gig economy. And you went from like being a punk folk musician to yeah. starring in a in a TV cartoon uh, that was pretty became quite popular. To then finally, you know, running your own uh, digital agency and then being a digital right. nomad yeah. living on Mauritius. So, can you kind of pick, uh, kind of paint us the story of how you first, how it came about that you, you know, first got into music and you always, uh, and then you always remained in the gig economy. And then you finally settled on the digital marketing um, and specifically the, the what's it called, brand, uh, brand SERPs, so mostly focusing on Google search. Um, yeah, right. Well, I mean, brand SERPs is a brand search engine results page. It's what Google shows when they Google your brand name uh, to either look, look, look you up and figure out who you are and what you do or to come to your site. And it's phenomenally important, but that's at the end, the really clever part when I'm going to be wearing the glasses. But for the folks who can't take the glasses off because I don't need to look clever for this part. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been in the gig economy. Um, I went to university in Liverpool. Oh, I played the Cavern Club, where the Beatles played. 
Um, that was my, my claim to fame during my time there with the world's worst blues band. We were called Stanley the Counting Horse um, for mm. reasons completely off the wall. And we played loads of blues gigs. I was, a, I, I was really thin. I was this thin uh, and quite small. Good old still. days. <laughs> Good old days. Um, and I had, uh, I still have this big deep voice. So I used to sing like these, these big blues songs, like I'm a man. And, um, and people just look at me and go like, how's that coming out of his mouth? He's incredibly small and incredibly thin. And he's got this big kind of deep, uh, thundering voice, which was quite funny. We played the Cavern Club, which was great. Um, and I'm terribly pleased about that. Oh, and if you look up alumni of John Moore's university, uh, I, sometimes come up alongside John Lennon because he went to the same school as I did. So <laughs> that, that's a nice kind of trick. That, this is the intellectual part that I'm playing with the knowledge graph is I can get myself put next to John Lennon in Google. Back to the real life when in fact I don't know John Lennon. He was there years and years before me. Um, so absolutely nothing to do with him except the fact I happened to hang out at the same college he did. But then uh, I left Liverpool and moved to Paris uh, because I was in love with a French woman um oh, so that's right yeah well i moved to paris because we've been exchanging postcards this was when the internet didn't exist literally this was oh when was that <laughs> 1988 <laughs> well it, i think it might have just existed but we certainly didn't know um and we used to exchange postcards and, and these these kind of terribly deep and meaningful postcards very short obviously whether you know i love you and then you kind of think now i think about it and go, the postman was reading this stuff I mean, he must have been having such a good laugh with these awful postcards coming from France um, and vice versa, I assume. Uh, and then I moved there and uh, literally moved my entire life there because I thought I was going to move. And I didn't bother asking her if she, if, she, if she was interested. And I turned up at her doorstep, knocked on the door. She opened the door uh, and she went, oh, uh, this is my boyfriend. And oh, really? Going out, yeah, uh, going out with a guy. And he was an economist as well. I did a degree in economics. Uh, and I, 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 I then said to me, he's an economist, I'm an economist. He's good looking, I'm good looking. He's boring, I'm funny. And she wouldn't have it. So that, that was, that was uh, a lost opportunity. And then um, her mum decided that she liked me. So she let me stay in the um, Chambre de Bonne in Paris, no. in the room above. And unfortunately, it was right above this girl's bedroom. So mm. I spent six months, obviously. I'll, I'll let your imagination run wild with that one. But it was a bit weird. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I was going to go home back to the UK. I didn't really want to, but I was, I was thinking, Ooh, living in Paris, isn't this cool? Uh, and I had 50 euros, or 50 francs, actually, sorry, at the time. I'm being, and, and it was enough to get a, a bus ticket. And I said, right, if I don't find a job today, I'll go home. Mm. And uh, look, I was in I was looking around, and somebody said to me, "Why don't you apply to be an English teacher?" I said, "Okay." So I rang up three English schools, English language schools. One of them said, "Yeah, you can have five hours a week, um, as from next week." Uh, so I said, oh, "All right, I'll stay." Uh, so that was my first gig job, as it were, uh, in Paris, uh, completely uh, outside of anything I'd imagined I'd be doing, um, and and and. How old it. were you at this point? Uh, 22, I think. Hmm. I absolutely hated it. I really hated teaching English. Um, uh, I mean, teaching's okay. 
Um, I like teaching. I mean, now I teach. I teach like on brand SERP courses, digital <laughs> marketing, and I love it. And I think I'm a good teacher. I think I express things correctly and clearly, uh, bringing people through to understanding what it is I've understood and making sense of, of what is actually a very complicated subject. But when you dig down and you manage to explain it, um, I would say properly or clearly, it's actually really, really simple. So back to English teaching. The worst thing about English teaching is what they say is get the person to talk to you and just correct them incessantly. And the problem with that is that you speak English or I speak English so well, it's my native language, yeah. is that I don't even have to listen to people to be able to, as soon as they make a mistake, it triggers my ear. So I could sleep most of the time. They make a mistake. I wake up and say, no, that's wrong. Correct it. And then go back to sleep again. Uh, and the problem with that is it sounds easy, but it's just boring. Mm. And it's boring listening to most people. Oh, I did say, please do interrupt me because none of us are interesting for a minute, but these students weren't interesting for five seconds. <laughs> okay. So there you go. Now in Paris, uh, gigging as it were, doing uh, work as an English teacher. And then some friends of mine said, you know, do you want to join our band? Because they knew I was a singer. Oh, okay. But in, in the UK or in, in the- No, in, in, in Paris, it was, it was oh. three English guys Uh, in Paris, playing in the street, basically. And they had a, a few gigs in, in small bars. And they were playing in the street and they were making a good living. Uh, they were playing in the street and playing in the metro. They used to leap into the metro in the morning. They'd leap into the, 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 the train carriages, play three songs, pass the hat around, jump off again. Um, making like a great living. And they said, do you want to join the band? And I said, oh yeah, great, uh, I'm a singer. And they said, oh, we don't need a singer, we can all sing. And I said, well, I can play a bit of guitar. They said, we don't need a guitar player. We've got a guitar player. We need a double bass player. I thought, I don't play the double bass. And they said, well, if you learn the double bass in 30 days, you can play in our band. <laughs> so I bought a double bass with my last 500 uh, pounds because I, I uh, had 500 pounds in a bank account because my grandfather had died, unfortunately, in between times and left me 500 pounds. Mm. So I went back to the UK, got the money out of the bank, went... <laughs> Went to, to buy, I, I saw an advert in the paper and it was a double bass for sale. I went, okay. Went round there and, and the guy said, okay, here you go. And he had like 100, he had five or six double basses. And he was a double bass teacher. And he said, well, one of my students has got really good at the double bass. So he's selling this one because it isn't up to standard for him. Uh, Do you want to try it? And I was going, uh, no, I don't want to try it at all. No, I'll just buy it, please. Uh, and bought it and brought it back uh, in the days when you crossed the, the English Channel on a, on a ferry. So I actually oh. had to carry it onto the ferry, carry it across, and then carry it off the other side, back onto the train and through Paris. Um, and then sat down and, well, I didn't sit down, stood up at my house and learned to play it in 30 days, um, which was, I'd love to say I was really good at it and natural, but uh, it was a bit of a struggle, to be honest. But uh, what they did, the, the band, uh, what, what, you, we used to have these places in Paris where we, you would play, and there were some places that made loads of money and some places that made not very much money. They were mm. called pitches, P-I-T-C-H-E-S. Uh, and they traded, everyone took their turn. It was terribly well organized and people were terribly fair. And, and they traded the best pitch in the city for a week with another group for lessons for me for the double bass so that I could actually get up to speed. Uh, and it was this improbably small German guy who played a double bass. You know, the double bass is this big and he was this big. Yeah. Uh, and he, he was amazing. A guy called Franz. He was such a nice guy and such a good double bass player. And he gave me a two hour lesson. The first hour was basically showing me where the notes were, showing me how to slap it. Um, and the second hour was 
And when you're really good, this is what you'll be able to do. And he spent an hour just showing me all the great things he could do on the device. So I'm just going, <laughs> I'm not getting there, mate. Um, but he gave me advice at the end, which is what saved my bacon, as it were, is that he said, right, rules of the game are you get up on stage and you smile. You never stop smiling. Whatever happens, you can play all the bum notes you want. You can make all the mistakes you want. You can do whatever you want, but never stop smiling. Rule number one, say. The best music advice. <laughs> Great. Well, it's actually very good music advice. So uh, any musicians out there, good, good, good hint. Uh, because when you're smiling, you look confident. When you look confident, people mm. imagine you know what you're doing, even if you don't. Um, next one was uh, slap it in time. Always hit it in time. Just think about the rhythm all the time. And if you get this hand wrong, which is the notes, if you play a bum note, a wrong note, there are two types of people in the audience. One is people who've got no idea about music and they, they don't hear it. They simply don't know you've played the wrong note. On the, this is on the bass. And there are jazz musicians who will hear it. But the, if they think, if you're smiling enough and you look confident enough, they'll think you've done something really clever that they don't mm. understand and they won't dare ask you about it. And that's it. And he says, so you can, nobody in, in, the, in the room actually knows when you make a mistake or cares. They don't know and they don't care is the double thing. Um, and every time you make a mistake, forget about it. Just put it behind you. And if you can do that, everything in front of you is always kind of everything is possible. And if you focus on where you went wrong before, that, that whole kind of field just closes down and you're going to get, you're going to make more and more mistakes. It's going to, it's going to snowball. Mm. Uh, which was genius advice because that's all I did for a month, basically. I didn't really learn to play the double bass. I just hit it in time and thought about forgetting mistakes and imagining that the people in the audience hadn't noticed what I'd done. Um, and then on the day itself, he was, he was quite small, so he actually stood on a table right at the back of the room. And throughout the gig, he was going, every time I didn't smile, and every time I made a mistake, he went, and it was brilliant. And he got me through the gig, and I got in a band, and the rest is history, as they say. And then you stuck with it for like eight years, I think, right? With the yeah, band? Yeah, playing in a band. In fact, well, we played in the street and we were making very good money. And I, I started organizing gigs and I wanted to play gigs. I mean, we basically rang up bars and said, can we play in your bar? Um, and luckily for us, if you know the Mana Negra, uh, Manu Chow's first group. No, I had no idea. Oh, Manu Chow's very famous. Um, uh, French musician. Mana Negra is basically the clash play, play folk, folk music in mm. French and Spanish. Um, and it, they're, they're awesome. They, they were really, really good. And what they did was opened up the French alternative music scene. So at the beginning of the 90s, or end of the 80s, actually, you know, French music was all Johnny Halliday and, and, and I can't remember who else was around at the time. But, you know, these, let's say, bland French musical artists. It was very variety, we call it in French, uh, which is pretty, pretty awful, dirgy pop music. <laughs> um, and what they did is they went round to every single record shop and they would take their literal records and they would put them in the shop play your the band gig. Or, or who no another band Mananegra oh okay and they would play the gig and they would tell everyone at the gig don't buy our record here you can't buy it here you have to buy it in the shops so people would then go to the shop the next day buy out all the stock the shop would think this is brilliant we're selling loads of records and they would restock and they mm. managed to get an entire musical movement. It's not just them. There were the Gaston Boucher was, were there as well and several others. Um, and there was an alternative rock scene, which was basically folk music played punk. 
And it's a really, really, really lovely thing to have been in. And we were basically just behind all of these groups. So we got the benefit of everything that they've done to open it up. So it's actually quite easy for me to organize tours. And so we then moved from um, playing in the street to being able to play tours, obviously playing small bars, but also big festivals would have us. Uh, and we managed to make four albums and we sold 40,000 albums in France. Wow. Um, so it was, a, it was a reasonably successful. I mean, in terms of festivals, we played with the Pogues. Um, we played on the same bill as Bob Dylan, believe it or not. Um, and it was a professional music career for somebody who didn't really know how to play the dual bass with a band who were playing um, punk folk music. We can call it poke if you want, P-O-L-K. But at some point you must have actually learned how to play decently right well i w jump forward uh, literally 30 years uh, and i started playing with a banjo player and a guitar player and the banjo player finally convinced me that i am actually quite a good musician mm. um, and, and that i'd just been saying i only play the double bass functionally but in fact i am quite a good double bass player and i do know much more than i let on so I, I kind of played down, but I, that initial kind of starting off thing, what, what it was for me was I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to play big stadiums full of like 30, 40,000 people. Never happened. But, you know, when you're in a band, you think you're completely convinced it's going to happen. Oh, uh, okay. And it's obviously never going to happen. But, but in your mind, you're driving. I mean, we used to do like 100,000 kilometers a year for six years in a row. Wow. And you'd be sitting in the van just going, it'll all be worth it. It'll all be worth it because we were playing in front of 40,000 people and you're convinced that that's what's going to happen, uh, which it doesn't. Well, um, was it worth it? Probably was still. Oh, even though brilliant. You... Great stories to tell people like you. Hey. <laughs> but you never thought about, uh, because what I'm interested too is that uh, you are originally from, from the UK, right? From, from yeah. Leeds, I think Leeds, you said? Yep, you got a uh, good uh, researcher. Uh, so, so you never thought about when you were all this time in, in, in Paris living there and then traveling, you never thought about going home. Like you never had a big, it seems like you never had a big, like love for, for living in, in the UK or, or am I just kind of <laughs> projecting something? No, in no, my mind? I think, I think, I think you're right. Um, there are several reasons. I mean, this is quite, well, the first one is simply Margaret Thatcher got in for the third time. She became prime minister for the third time. Cool. cool. So, so again. Margaret Thatcher. Oh, okay. She's famous as well, like Manu Chan. No, I know, I know, I know, my girl. He might possibly just... have influenced world events a little bit more. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being facetious. I do apologize. <laughs> um, so I actually left because I couldn't stand the idea of conservative government for the third time. And in France at the time, it was a socialist government. And I thought that suits me better. Um, so I moved for political reasons. And once I got to Paris, the thing that struck me was I come from a family of relatively successful people in their, in their uh, different um, lines of, of, of work and quite kind of heavy, judgmental um, that I felt, at least. That's my personal feeling for it. When I got to France, I just sat there and I thought, I can be whoever I want. I can completely reinvent myself. Uh, and basically, I spent, it, it took a, in Paris, if you, anyone ever moves to Paris, it takes a year to make any friends at all. Yeah, so the French are. Yeah, well, you stick it out for a year. And after a year, it actually becomes really, really nice. But that first year is a struggle. But I just spent that first year saying, who do I want to be? And it was terribly existential. Um, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? Uh, and by the end of the year, I was in the band. Um, 
and thinking, this is so much fun. And ironically, my, my mother, in fact, is a jazz musician. Um, uh, but she left home when I was four. So she didn't bring me up. So the jazz music has got nothing to do with my upbringing because my mm -hmm. upbringing was all in literature, which is what my father was doing. Um, uh, but she left home to go and play in the street, to go and play music in the street and become a musician by learning along the way because she wasn't technically a musician. She was a painter. Um, and then I went home and I sort of went to see her and I said, oh, uh, I've, I've joined a band and we're playing in the street and I'm playing the double bass. And she went, oh, don't. Went, oh, why not? So get a job as, a, as, a, as an accountant. You've got an economics degree. You could become an accountant. Like I said, but why? And she said, because it's safe. And I said, but you left home to learn music, playing in the street. Do you regret that decision? She said, not at all. Are you happy? Yep. So why are you telling me not to do it? Insane. Yeah. But it just turns out it's, it's a mother being worried that her son is going to, is going to suffer and, and not be able to make a, a wonderful life for himself and that music isn't a career for your own son, even if it's a career for yourself, which is a bit weird, but there you go. No, that, that, that makes sense. No, I, I know it's how it goes. Um, so, so then somehow you, I think the next episode was the, like the TV cartoons. So how, how does, how does, how does one go from, you know, playing in a band on a double bass to, to doing like, uh, yeah. uh TV cartoons? Well, uh, with great difficulty is the answer. Um, it, it's an, it's another kind of weaving story because basically what happened is everybody else left the band except me. Um, everyone said, oh, I'm bored. Or this is, they all realized we were never going to be stars, I think. And they all left one by one. And I ended up on my own with the, with the bass. The drummer left and went to Czech Republic and is now in Russia and plays avant-garde jazz music um, and writes anti-Western uh, pieces for English language Russian papers, which is a bit strange. Um, Another guy moved to the south of France and is now doing voiceovers for video games. And another guy moved to the UK, uh, delivering vegetables as a job. <laughs> uh, got on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, won a fortune, spent it all, and then moved to Thailand. And is now happily living in Thailand. So um, basically they all, all went off because they wanted to do something different. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to keep doing this myself. And I'm not going to go and get a pro proper job because by that time, by, well, how old I must have been? Almost, th I must have been, I was 30. At 30, you kind of think, well, I'm not going to get a proper job now. It's a bit late. Uh, so I, I got kind of part-time work, but luckily my wife had a really good job as a graphic designer. She was, um, uh, what would you call it? Uh, artistic director for a major French advertising agency. So she made decent money and we had a child. And she said, basically, if you stay home and look after the child, I'll bring the money. And I went, that's all right for <laughs> me. So I brought my, my our daughter up for, uh, for two or three years. Um, and during that time, I started writing songs for children, which ironically was what we had all said when we were in the band would be a nightmare. Our nightmare audience would be children. And we all laughed about it because we were punks. And as soon as I ended, I thought, actually, I quite like to write songs for kids. Kids are all right. Um, so I wrote these songs for the kids, went to the record companies who all knew me because I'd been in the record industry in France for uh, seven or eight years. And none of them wanted it. They said, oh, no, no, we can't use that. Oh, no, no, not at all. No. And, and, and basically, it turns out the music industry for children in France is a mafia. Oh, wow. Not a literal mafia, but, you know, you can't get in. Uh, so I mean, I, like, you need connections and... 
yeah that kind of thing yeah much more than the the, the wider world i mean it's a, it's a it's a niche market but they sell gazillions of records and make absolutely loads of money um and they won't let you in if you're not part of their club and it's a very different club to the the rock uh the the, the rock and pop kind of uh, part of the industry so hmm. uh, i then talked to my wife and i said yeah should we because we she, sorry she had created and my, she and I had created the two characters to sing the songs. It wasn't going to be us. It was going to be these two characters, a blue dog called Boo-Wah and a yellow koala called Koala. And she was the yellow koala and I was the blue dog. And the idea was the blue dog had this big, deep voice and he was terribly reassuring, would sing in tune all the time. And then the little yellow koala would sing out of tune, out of time, get it wrong. And she would be the kind of child to make the child feel comfortable um, with a character they could relate to. And then the blue dog bringing both the child and koala forwards in terms of learning and understanding. And, and, and uh, it, it, was, it was a really, really sweet idea. Um, and I said, well, why don't we make a book? So she took the 12 songs I'd written and she created a story out of them around the world in 12 songs with Boo and Koala. Um, and then she did all the drawings. We wrote the story together put the album and the book together and then went to see the book publishers thinking if we get the book publishers to publish it then we've nailed it we've got our record out turns out they don't want it either because I didn't know anybody it's less of a mafia as far as I understand but they didn't want it because they didn't know who I was and they just had another two boring characters don't need them we've got hundreds of them boring 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 um so you know it's kind of soul destroying uh and then oh this is this is a nice story as well I was <laughs> I was playing one of those awful fantasy football games on, on internet, and this is 1998. Okay. Oh, it, um, it was already around? I didn't know. Oh, God, yeah, it was awful. I mean, I mean awful. I, mean, I played, I was using a dialogue modem, you know, that, that funny noise at the beginning each time when you're um, connecting, and it would connect to like 14K, which is unbelievably slow. Um, and I played this game, and I played, I played it a couple of times and lost. I, I was kind of down the bottom of the league and then I figured out basically what their algorithm was doing and I managed to I did four at a time and I won three of the four mm. and I thought all oh, right what have I won and they said oh you got um your subscription to these magazines and so I've, I got the one for football because I like me football so I got subscription for the football magazine subscription for I can't remember what the second one was probably another football magazine and I thought I don't want a third one and the only one I could see that even might be interesting was one about the internet. So I got that. And there was a free copy of Macromedia Flash. Mm. And I, you might not know what it is, but uh, it was Adobe Flash afterwards. Uh, animation software, programming, animation with some program. At the time, okay. it was just animation. Uh, so I sat down. I said, right, I'm going to make a website. This, I'm going to do animation. And I'm going to make, uh, put the songs into an animation form, make stories up, and... Uh, because there's a very small amount of programming, I'll start programming these games. And at the time, the programming was, was I mean, Flash 3, there was no programming. Flash 4, they had the start of Action Script, which was the simplest programming in the world. So I just sat down and I learned it uh, and created a website. Um, so that because the, the record companies and the publishers didn't want the characters, I thought, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it mm. a success. I'm going to prove you all wrong because this is really cool. Um, and once again, my wife was making a decent living, so I could afford to do that, uh, which was an immense luxury. Mm. Um, 
and it works. So, so that was like your first, uh, how do you say, like first step into the digital marketing in a way. Exactly, yeah, because we launched the site and the first thing I had to do was figure out the search engines at the time. I mean, uh, the search engines, there was InfoSeek, um, Hotbot, Magellan, uh, I can't remember the other ones. So there were 15 of them. Excite was another one. Oh, the one with the dog. Um, oh, I can't remember it. Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, and you had to make it basically it was all counting words. It was all down. They didn't even think about links. It was all about what was in the page. And so mm. you would create one page for each keyword and each variant of each keyword for each motor for each search engine. So there were like 15 search engines, 50 keywords. That would be 10,000 pages you would have to create. Oh, so that, that Google wasn't around then because yeah, I think you, you mentioned somewhere that like <laughs> your first beginnings was when Google was, was coming up. Google was incorporated in September, 1998. I launched the website in December, 1998 with, uh, an animated advent calendar. Mm. Um, so September, 1998, when they were incorporated, I was building the advent calendar that was then released three months later. So I've had a parallel career to, to, to Google pretty much. Um, obviously, I've seen how I've evolved and how they've evolved in parallel in many ways, but they obviously haven't noticed me. Mm. So, so how did you then go from that that moment to then having the you know like uh, having being like a full on digital nomad? Um, I guess moving at some point to Mauritius yeah. and then <laughs> and then getting. A, I guess more involved with the whole like Google and search search results and that like and never and never really going back to the normal job market but like sticking with the gig economy like what was like how, how, what was the path? Well, we launched in 1998, and then in mid 1999, a French businessman contacted us and said, "You know, I'd like to be part of your project." Oh, okay. um, and we said, "Great." Uh, and at the time, my daughter was ill quite a lot. Um, my wife wasn't happy in her job um, and we decided we needed to get away from Paris uh, so I said to him okay you can come in but we want to move to the other side of the world and he said where and I said there and the idea for me was at the time people were saying you can do internet sites from anywhere in the world it doesn't matter but nobody was doing it everyone's still sitting in the cities doing it and I thought right I'm gonna I'm gonna do this once again I'm I don't know how you tête de mule in French I just want to prove that things can be done uh, Mauritius is a tiny island just off Mauritius, uh, off uh, Madagascar, desert yeah. island, not a desert island, tropical island. Uh, we have this vision as a desert island. It's actually very heavily populated for the size. Um, and so we moved there um, to be in the sun, be next to the sea. And it was absolutely beautiful. Um, it was a really, really nice experience um, just from the sense of getting away from Western culture, going to the Southern Hemisphere, learning a different way of life, learning that life isn't quite so stressful as it was in Paris. Um, and, and there's a really nice story for the beginning of this is we got a house and it was just, um, it was next to a cemetery, the post office and the sea, it was near the seafront. And the postman came around and said, um, all right, who are you basically? And I said, well, you know, I gave him our names because it, it, it's the postman who just kind of, it, it's not address it. They don't have, uh, postcodes so it's kind of very manual approach to delivering mail um, and I said oh but can you tell me what the address is because the landlord hasn't actually given us an address the contract for the house only says you know the town and he said oh 
there isn't really an address for this house. It's Shay Dutton and the Villian. I said, well, we don't really like that. Can I, can I say between the sea and the post office? And he went, okay. I said, oh, is that my address? And he went, yep. I said, oh, can I change it? Can I change it to between the cemetery and the sea? And he said, nope, you can't change it. You've made your mind up. That's it. The first one you said is the one you're going to get. <laughs> Which was did it really stay our way? It did. Well, what was nice is because we had these characters, Buwa and Kuala, we could tell people, tell the, the, the audience, the kids. I mean, at this point, we had like a million kids a month coming to the site. Um, and we could say to them, write, send your drawings into Buwa and Kuala. The address is Buwa and Kuala, between the sea and the post office, Mauritius. And they, I mean, their parents must have been going, I'm not sending that. It's like sending it to Santa Claus at the North Pole. It's such a ridiculous address. But it, the kids were going, yeah, between the sea and the post office, Mauritius, that's completely logical. And it got to us every time. Mm. So it was, it was a beautiful kind of piece of uh, bad luck, good luck. I mean, because if I'd chosen the cemetery and the, and the sea, we couldn't have given that to the kids because, you know. Mm. But the, between, <laughs> the, the, between the sea and the post office is a beautiful little address. Um, and and that, then what happened is basically I, I got to Mauritius, we set up, and I was going to get developers to, to help with the code, to build the server, do the MySQL, the, the databases, run the server, uh, do the coding of the site, do the promotion, do the marketing, do the search engine optimization. My idea was to employ all these people because we now had a businessman on board who was providing some money. <laughs> I, it didn't occur to me until I actually turned up there that there weren't any of these qualified people on the island. And when I advertised oh. for people to code, they would say, uh, I know Excel a bit. <laughs> yeah, man, that's not coding. Uh, so I actually had to learn all these skills myself in order to be able to then manage the people who were supposed to be doing the job so I could actually teach them how to do it a lot of the time. Not all the time, of course. Mm, because it um, wasn't the time of remote work. Remote work was not no, trendy and, at that point. No, and it was 2000 on an island in the middle of nowhere, um, yeah. which hadn't really hooked onto the internet at the time. Uh, the internet was awful. Um, so I, I hadn't calculated all of that. It was just kind of, what nice idea. This is a good idea. And it's a lot of my life has been about that, like going to see the, 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 the woman I was in love with in Paris. It's a good idea. And I don't think it through to the end. But I just want to do it because I want to see what's going to happen. Mm. <laughs> it's usually difficult. But it's very rewarding. It's a rewarding way to live. Um, and so and from an SEO point of view, uh, I was lucky enough to get this guy, the, the guy who liked Excel. I said, you're not going to be a programmer, but what you can do with Excel is calculate the word ratios for each of the search engines. Mm. And then we can build pages and you can write them. So you don't need to code. You're using Excel to calculate the word ratios on an example sample of these pages. And then you can calculate it and then you can write them because you're actually, you know, he spoke pretty good English and he, he was a semi-marketing guy. And he, it was really funny. He had the office next to mine and he literally locked himself away for a month and we hardly ever saw him. And I never asked him what he was doing. I assumed he was getting on with it. And one day he just came out, it was like, Eureka. And he had, the, he had this, this sheet of paper with his formula for all the different search engines on it. Uh, and he just went through and created and, and the pages, some of them are still, I mean, what I then said to him is, right, okay, we're gonna do it in this order of importance. And I started with Google and then went down. Um, and he, after a couple of months, we realized that Google was the one we were performing best on and it's the one that brought in the most traffic. So I just said, we can forget about the rest. We're just gonna go with Google, which is probably the best decision I could have made. That was in nice. 2002, probably. Um, and so we just forgot about bet. the others. It was a good bet, lucky bet, maybe. 
Um, and what's interesting is that one of the pages he built in 2002 is still ranking number one 18 years later. Wow. Which is astonishing. I mean, hats off to him. I mean, amazing. And, and that was the art of, of being a, a, an employer in, um, in Mauritius was you don't advertise for a job or you advertise for a job. People come in and then you look at what they can do and you find them a job to do. Ah, okay. And it worked really well. I mean, we ended up with 14 people working for us at one point. And it was basically, I'll just create the job around what they were good at. <laughs> it, was, it, it was a, a successful way of managing it. Mm. So what are your like big, um, because then from then on, it's kind of your, your life looked a bit different in a way that you, you know, you focus on then the brand SERP and the digital marketing. Oh, right. But... Sorry, just there's a big hole there. Sorry, just to interrupt you. Mm -hmm. Come back a bit. In fact, at one, at one point, ITV International approached us and said, "Can we make a cartoon?" We have five million visits a month uh, on the site, uh, hundred million page views a month. It was a phenomenal success. They were ten thousandth biggest site in the world. Oh and we wow! Only, we were only for kids up to ten years old. I mean, it was we were we were competing with PBS and Disney and the BBC. I mean, it's insane what we were doing. Um, and then ITV said, oh, we'd like to make a TV series. And we ended up making a TV series, uh, 52 episodes, Guan Kuala. It showed in 25 countries in the end. We did it in French and English. Um, and, and that was really, really, really enjoyable. Um, so kind of it went from the website to the TV series. And the whole thing collapsed due to an argument with the business partner, which is terribly unfortunate. Oh, okay. So that's, I wanted to ask how it ended. But uh, like, as often well, happens, let, let, some let, kind of say, argument. Yeah, sorry. I, I got so into it that I became the blue dog. Mm. I mean, I think somewhere in my I mean, I went a bit mad, I think, about halfway through. Uh, and one, one day we had these guys, it was amazing, this guy who did these animations, astonishingly talented chap. Um, he left school at 16, no qualifications, came in for an interview, um, and we were looking for people to help my wife with the drawings and illustrations and animations. And I said to her, well, I don't know how to choose them. She said, well, I'm not coming in. Um, so what I did, I interviewed them and I got them to draw, draw a copy of one of her characters. And then I took them back and I went, right, I've got 10 drawings for you. I know which one you're going to pick because like, it's the best one. I presented to her and she went, nope. And she went through and then she picked the worst one. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? It doesn't look anything like it. And she said, yeah, but he's got a soul. This guy's got a soul and he's going to take the characters further than I would. So I employed him. And turns out she was right. He was absolutely brilliant. And oh. one day he did this animation of the blue dog walking across the screen. And I looked and I thought, he was actually kind of like, like this, looking really happy. It was amazing. Uh, and I said to him, that's an amazing animation. How did you manage to do that? That's astonishing. I just watch you every day. <laughs> he, he just basically, the blue dog was me. And that, was, that became the problem is that I would see in this blue dog myself. Oh, and okay. I, would, I would become Blue Dog. And I was with a business partner who was obviously just out to make loads of money. Um, mm, I and see. I was there to be the Blue Dog and share this glorious, wonderful content with happiness and joy with the world, children. Uh, so I got completely shafted. Mm, I see. So what are your, like, from that part of life, which is kind of crazy, I mean, many different things you did and, you know, many stories and stuff. Like, are there some, like, biggest takeaways from you from all those like kind of from doing the music playing in a band to then um yeah well dare to dream you'll be a rock star 
because yeah. that allows you to actually stick through six years of driving 100,000 kilometers a, a year with people you don't even like who, who burp and fart in the van. Um, believe that what you're doing is good. Make it as good as you possibly can. Uh, don't be pretentious. Try and take a step back and, and, and say, actually, is it as good as I think? Can I make it better? Be self-critical without saying, without uh, putting yourself down. Don't say this isn't good. Say this isn't as good as it could be. And here's how mm. I can make it better. And that's, that's basically when we were doing Buwankwala, how we progressed. And if you look at the site, which is actually still online, you can find it, Buwankwala, up to 10.com. Um, and if you look at the very first ones, 12, around the world with Buwankwala, you'll see the quality. I mean, you, you can feel that it's nice, but you can see the quality isn't there. And you get to the end and the quality is astonishing. I mean, we had a team, so it's not, it's not just me, but uh, it was me and my wife, uh, these guys doing the animations. Uh, some guy doing the sound as well, another guy helping out with the music. Um, but when it was rejected twice, or in two different contexts, and I created the third context, we had to fight for two years to get it accepted by anybody, and then another four years to get anywhere near making any money, and then another two years to get ITV International to make the TV series. Perseverance. Mm, stick stick it. I mean, it. If you really, really believe in it, stick with it. Um, but obviously it's dangerous because you can stick with something that just isn't going to work. But if you have some talent and you persevere and you keep banging away, it will end up bringing something. Mm -hmm. So obviously you need the talent to start with, but it's the perseverance that makes it happen. If you've got talent, but you don't persevere, you won't get anywhere as a rule. Yeah. It's like a multiply talent multiplied by perseverance and uh you might actually get somewhere <laughs> yeah i had a bit of luck in your way absolutely wonderful yeah true true and uh and and what about the whole like gig economy like you never i guess you you had enough success to to never really i guess probably think about you know going back to like the typical life of you know going back to uk mm. or somewhere else getting a job or something like that i guess you just got enough like success in the kind of in the middle um, to, to never think about it? Or you thought about it, but just never happened? No, well, um, I, I, I've always thought, I actually did start a job once, so I'm kind of, uh, but it was a trial period, three months. Uh, and after three months, I just, I, I'm, I'm never doing this again. I had a, a weird boss. She, she was lovely, actually, but she, she was mad. Uh, I worked for, for three months and I never saw her wear the same outfit twice. Mm. And we lived in Paris and she must have had a tiny flat. How did she do it? <laughs> I've been wondering that for 35 years. <laughs> um, but and, and after that, I mean, basically it was, it was a gig job just in the sense that it was only three months uh, and I didn't intend to stay even after the first kind of few days. Uh, but that, that was a real memory for me that I refer back to to say I never, I mean, she was nice. She was a lovely person. I just don't want to be in that situation. It doesn't suit me. I'm not really good at it. Um, so no, I've, I've never thought about that. I always think, and I think, where can I go next? What can I do next? Um, but there are a couple of things. One is I'm now probably too old. Um, and the other is being in the gig economy, I have every advantage that makes it or made it easy for me to make that choice because I could always fall back on the advantages I have, which is white male, English speaking, well-educated, mm. um, tall, good looking, uh, quite bulky, nice deep voice. People have confidence in somebody with a deep voice. You can't have got every advantage possible. Uh, if I'd been a woman or if I'd been small or if I'd had a tiny little voice like that, um, 
I couldn't, I wouldn't have had the courage because I wouldn't have had the fallback option. And I think that's really important to remember is that knowing you've got the fallback option makes it much easier. So I think I had it relatively easy. Um, so it was like calculated risk in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a degree in economics. I mean, I, I could fall back on becoming an accountant. It's probably too late to be an accountant now because you've got to be, oh, I'm not. So I always say rude things about accountants and I, I regret it immediately afterwards. But um, I, so I, I've never thought about it. Um, honestly, with COVID, it's the first time I've thought, I don't have uh, a pension. Oh, dear. Mm. So the gig economy has this big advantage. So when you get to my age, 54, and COVID comes along, um, I mean, 54, fine. Uh, I might have started worrying about it anyway. But COVID, you kind of think, ah, mm, crumbs. Things can change very quickly. You can become incapacitated very quickly, very suddenly. Then the whole thing goes out the window. What do I do then? I think at this point, you're probably in your life. I mean, just listening to you and reading about you and kind of seeing what you've done. I can imagine that you've got not so many, but like enough skills to just figure yeah. something out. Like at this point, you learn, you know, you did so many things. You had to figure so many things out, you know, solve so many problems and learn so many like different skills in different areas that I think if like push comes to shove, you can just basically, you know, do so many things that you always kind of survive, I think. I mean, like, from my point of view. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. And the other thing is, I mean, as you say, I learn things relative, with relative ease. Um, I'm not going to say easily, but um, so kind of just saying, oh, I'm going to do that. I mean, I, I actually picked up a thing called Doodly. Uh, they've got these awful, awful, awful salesy ads on, on YouTube. But I kind of thought, yeah, okay, why don't I give Doodly a go? Because I've got illustrations, which my wife does, my ex-wife does. And I've got these videos that I'm making. I've got a green screen set up just over here. So I can record green screen videos, put animations behind it. But I can't do animations and I can't afford to pay somebody to do them for me. So I picked up Doodly, started working on it. And it took me literally a day to do some actually pretty good animations. And you'll see them on my Twitter feed. Um, mm. I'll be releasing them soon. Um, and it's obviously Doodly is a great platform for it. But because I've done so many of these things in the past, picked up Flash and learned it, picked up MySQL, PHP, um, is that kind of you just kind of think, I've just got to get into the head of the person who developed this. Mm. Figure out how they've been approaching it, what's logical for this kind of software. And you can get your head around it quite quickly. What took me longest was figuring out, because I've got these pre drawn illustrations and I have to get the hand because it's a doodly hand that goes like that. And I had to get the hand to actually look like it was drawing all the different elements. Um, that was the hardest thing of the lot. All the rest of it is really easy. And I'm not an affiliate of doodly at all. And I don't even like them because they've got a horrible sales pitch, but um, the product is actually pretty good. And it, it's made my animation skills. It's taken my animation skills from zero to about here. So, that's pretty good. No, no, no. It depends it's... where is the you know the top. Well, if if we say Disney, oh, well, we'll say Disney's here because it's top of the screen. In fact, well, I'm 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 still here, mm -hmm. but it's good enough for YouTube. So, um, so I mean, we'd, and it's quick and it's easy. But it, I think the kind of the point you're trying to make, yes, is I could segue into a a different career if I needed to. But I think, uh, and what I've done is now we can talk about brand surfs, um, is but and before we get there, can, can we just talk about one more thing? Like, I think because you touched on a couple of times on learning, and I think this is uh, 
I think something you have something to to say there for sure because it seems like you, you mentioned twice that once that um, you kind of have an ease to learning, but also I think you mentioned once that you you always feel like you can learn anything. Do, do you know where that comes from? That you would always like go into something you wouldn't know anything about it, and you would you would be like, oh, I can mm. I can figure it out. I can learn it, and I can become good at it. Because oh. I think a lot of people don't have that, and you started a lot of things from scratch. So I think you have to have some like secret sauce there. Uh, that, that's a great question, actually, because uh, in fact, when I was 16, I mean, in, in, in the UK, you do exams at 16. You, fact, do you do what? Them, at 16? You do exams. Ah, okay, exam. Yeah, yeah, at 16. You do them at 11, and it's called the 11 plus, or it was at the time. And if you get really good marks, you can go to a really posh school, a really good school. If you get bad marks, you go to a really bad school. And I was on the cusp. I almost got the good marks, but I didn't get them, so I went to the really crap school. Mm. Uh, then at 16, you do exams. And I failed almost all of them. I went from being one of the brightest kids in the class to being one of the stupidest kids in the class, or the least successful, let's say. Um, and then I scraped through my levels and then the economics degree, basically I did economics because for me it was the easiest subject I could find. I found it easier than the other ones. Um, and so my educational career, I've got a degree, so obviously it's not a failure, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't what it should have been. Uh, and I think that's encouraging for anybody, just in the sense that um, academic qualifications aren't everything. Um, your perseverance and your desire to learn uh, a great deal in that, and your capacity to, and it's having a flexible brain. I was talking to a guy called David Amelin, who's an absolute absolute lovely chap and a genius person about analyzing how we how we think and how we work in our brains um and we were talking about flexible people with flexible brains and people without flexible brains narcissists don't have flexible brains mm. um uh, people with empathy do have flexible brains i mean obviously that's not the only distinction but it's a, it's a good way of looking at it because we had a guy in the band who bit of a narcissist he couldn't learn to play guitar. He would play every day, three hours. And after four years, he was still as crap as he was at the start. Open mind, no? It's yeah, open. open mind. That's a good word. And it comes to, he couldn't understand that simply by practicing and practicing and practicing, he didn't get any better. So when I say persevere, I mean persevere if you've got any semblance of talent. Um, and persevere if you're willing to learn and adapt and keep that open mind. Be empathetic. I mean, I said earlier on about the, the software I'm using. I was trying to understand how they would be looking at it. That's being empathetic. Mm -hmm. It's understanding their point of view. And that helped me get to the point where I could master their or master, get something decent out of their software very quickly. Because I wasn't thinking, what would I do? I was thinking, what would they do to make this easy for me? And who injected that in you? Like, what did it just come somehow naturally for different like, It was the blue dog. Say again? It was the blue dog. Oh, the blue dog. The blue dog, as I said, I became the blue dog. The blue dog was this incredibly nice, kind, empathetic character with a big, deep voice. I mean, a little story with that is that I started the voice and I thought my voice needed to be a little bit lower. So I took it down two semitones. So everything I sang and everything I said was down two semitones, which makes it slightly deeper. And having done that for four or five years, I realized that my voice now is the same as the adapted voice that I'd made. So my voice adapted to the character, my character adapted to the character, I became more empathetic, more caring. Uh, I now say thank you incessantly, whereas I didn't before, because the, the blue dog's role was to be polite. 
please thank you. Lovely to see you. Absolutely delightful. Um, oh, and smiling and being chirpy and cheerful all the time. The, the, because the, the voice was so low, I had to be excessively cheerful all the time. And that rubbed off on my character as well. And then if we come back to the Mauritius thing is when I couldn't find a PHP developer or a MySQL developer, I bought a book on Amazon, got it delivered to the house, read the book over the weekend, went in on the Monday and said to the developers, right, who didn't specialize in that, but you know, I did have developers and said, right, here's how we're going to approach it. You need to read that chapter, that chapter, that chapter, and then you're going to put this into operation. So it was, it was by necessity mm. because but, the coding, but, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. So it was kind of, it, it's a mixture of, uh, you know, it, it was, it was necessity to actually get things to move forward in a situation where if I didn't do it, nothing would happen. And mm -hmm. everybody was relying on me to make it happen. Uh, so responsibility, necessity, and then being empathetic because I needed to be empathetic to what, uh, in the case of the software, how they're trying to approach it, but empathetic also to the people I was asking to do things and to what could they do and what couldn't they do, what would demotivate them if it didn't work out, so on and so forth. So um, I, I like what you said about um, being, being open-minded. If you're open-minded, and that's the other thing, and I said it earlier on about be critical of yourself. Don't criticize yourself. Look for where things... Uh, could be better. This isn't as good as it could be. Don't ever say it's not good enough. It's not as good as it could be. And then you just keep moving. Like, it sounds terribly American and Ted, but but that idea. I mean, um, with the, with the talks I give and the conferences I give and the podcasts, I, I listen back and I watch back and I think, where where could I have made this a little bit better? Mm -hmm. And so it goes for performing as well. It goes with playing the double bass. It goes with being on stage, giving a show. Uh, I mean, when you're on stage playing the double bass, you're playing the double bass, you're singing, you're remembering the words, you're remembering the song, you're remembering the structure, and you're giving a show to the, to the, to the audience so that they, uh, there's a connection with them. You can't just play the, well, I can't just play the music and expect people to go, oh, that's great. That would be a, let's say, a dull jazz concert where people just admire how good you are. And I wasn't good enough to do that. So I would make a show so that people would get into the show and think, wow, this is cool. And I feel part of this show. Mm -hmm. Empathy again. Yeah, empathy. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like you're, you're just like developed a really good um, way with people. Like, you know how to be with people, talk with people, be empathetic with people like throughout the, the years and experiences. Well, I had a, a, an interesting comment um, from from my ex-girlfriend who said, um, basically, she's seen me working. She's seen me with one bunch of people. She's seen me with another bunch of people. She's seen me with the people I work with. And she's going to be the same everywhere. I mean, this is just me. It's not even kind of me trying to be nice to people or trying to be something that I'm not. It's, I'm like this with my clients. I will say the same stupid things I'm saying to you that I will say it to my clients. Uh, so... I can't be any other way and I lose clients because they think, oh, no, he's not very professional, but that's fine by me because I wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. And also one, one last thing, I think you, one thing that stood out to me is that you, and this is, I think, what separates most people who, you know, end up kind of getting something done in life, like maybe not achieving success because success is uh, has different definitions for everyone, but, Brilliant. you know, like kind of, accomplishing some some interesting things and, and you know kind of uh going their own way and 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 uh 
and succeeding in some way is that you have this mindset of like looking for solutions rather than problems. Like you always, you always, you don't look like where there's like half of the people or even more, I feel like even more, like when they have a problem or something happens or there's an obstacle, they immediately, you know, start looking at like, oh, why is this bad? Oh, it's, it's horrible. You know, I can't do. And, you know, they just kind of list out all that's wrong with it instead of immediately switching to, okay, this happened. It, like, there's nothing to do about it. Like, how can I solve this? And I think- Oh, sorry, I, I interrupt there, but uh, that comes back to playing dual base. The guy told me, when you make the mistake, put it behind you and look, look forwards. And it's exactly that same idea. It's saying there was a barrier, but it's now behind me. Let's move forward. Sorry, I interrupted. No, 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 that's, that's perfect. Okay, so, so, so it, it comes from somewhere around that time. Um, but it's, well, it's I think it's, a cumul- it's a cum- accumulation, but I think uh, pl- learning to play the bass, because I really, really wanted to be in the band. I mean, it was really something I really, 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 really wanted. And I was willing to put myself through a month of very hard, hard work learning the double bass. Uh, I didn't have a job. Well, I, I didn't work. I just worked on double bass and I took the risk. Uh, and I worked and I worked and I worked and I really wanted it. Um, and that taught me that you can kind of make these drastic decisions and it can work out and it can fail as well and then you take the kids album later on i made that drastic decision and it completely failed then we did the book and it completely failed then i did the third attempt and it was the website and it succeeded but it succeeded after four years so you also had to fall in love with the process like brilliant oh and that is the thing is i wake up every morning thinking "Ooh, what am i going to do today Um, which, which, which actually makes life much, much easier. Um, and that's the great thing about the gig economy, or at least the, the being freelance or, or making your own decisions, you decide. There's always going to be something you don't want to do. Um, and you, you've always got to do it. You can't just put all the stuff you don't like to one side and just do the stuff you like. But if the overreaching overall uh, project is something you're excited about, even the boring stuff is nice. Or, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and one of the other things I did when I, I had these people working in Mauritius is that I had meetings and I would say to them, 50% of your job has to be enjoyable. Oh. If less than 50% of your job is enjoyable, come to me, tell me what isn't enjoyable and we'll try and figure out a way to get that out of your work so that 50% or at least 50% is stuff you actually enjoy doing and you're pleased to come to work to do it. And Where that's rest- 50% came from? Was it just something you like? You just came up with? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 can't, I kind of figure if, if I'm doing two hours of work and what I do, the first hour is so boring, but I think, but the next hour is going to be really nice. Then That's I can good. do the two hours of work. And it, it, there's no reason it's 50%. It worked for me. Um, but what actually happened is people would come to see me and they would say, okay, I don't like sending this email. It's always the, always the same. And I said, okay, we'll write a script so you can click on a button and it sends the email for you. So that mm-hmm. gets rid of half of your work. Now, what do you want to do with the other half? And they would suggest and would agree. And then they'd end up with a, a new partial job description. That was a lot of fun and it worked really well. Hmm. That's a good, um, uh, good advice. Hope people well, that, are that's all, taking notes. <laughs> it's, yeah, sorry, no, but it's also empathy because I'm thinking, how are they feeling about doing their job? I mean, I'm telling them to do all this stuff. Um, and it breaks my heart when, well, it breaks my heart. It makes me feel a bit annoyed when somebody 22 years old comes and says, oh, I don't want to do that. It's boring. You go, we all have to do boring things sometimes. The art of the thing is to understand that the boring stuff goes with the interesting stuff. I mean, even today, I'm doing my own project and I love my project, but half of my work is boring. 
Half of my work is stuff I don't really want to do, but the project interests me. And the other half is really interesting. Like this part is really cool. I consider this to be part of my job because my job is brand SERPs and you said it right at the beginning. So the job for today in inverted commas is done. We've got the message across the water pivot and somebody Googles your brand name is incredibly important to your business. Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a bit pushy, wasn't it? I do apologize. No, no, no. I, I had this in mind anyway, but um, I just wanted to say that that um, that yeah, I feel like this is this is one big uh, problem. But I think it's there's a few reasons for it. It's hard to pinpoint one, like social media, all these things that yeah. kind of glorify the, the the success and also the doing the the cool things that you want to do. But a lot of people don't show you know, a lot of the grind, you know, the freelancers or entrepreneurs or people who have their own business and stuff, they don't show that what really goes behind the scenes that they in fact do a lot of things they don't want to. Still, eventually you can design your life and everything that way that you minimize amount, but you still have to do like quite a big part of it. Um, but as you said, if you have a bigger project or bigger goal or bigger like vision, then doing some small thing that you don't like then becomes bearable. It's hard when you like work in some corporate job that you hate and there's no like really vision for where you can get and then and everything sucks, then like, yeah, obviously that that's <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean and, and that's probably why uh, if we come back to the question of the beginning of why I never why I always stayed in the gig economy is because I couldn't stand being in something in a corporate job where I I, I could hate it and it goes around in circles. And the other thing is the people above me, the people I work with, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an, a nice enough guy and I'm empathetic enough and I get on with most people, but you're saying, I don't want to be forced to always work with the same people. Mm -hmm. And that variety is also some, perhaps something, listening to other people, getting feedback from other people, from a wide range of people also helps with that learning process. Hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. That's a and good with, with the different, different, I mean, the, the number of clients I've had, the number of people I've worked with, the number of projects I've worked on, uh, it's a phenomenal variety. And I think that uh, if, if, if we're going to say, like, how do you learn to learn? It's take a step back, be empathetic to what you're trying to do or be realistic to what you're trying to do and empathetic to the, to the, to the people and the tools that are going to help you get there. Um, and do as many different projects as you can because that variety of projects is going to help you to understand how you can better learn stuff. And one thing I did, in fact, for making the TV series, the, the film director who made the TV series, who was the, the director, they actually put me as part of the team, so I co-directed it. And I bought a book from Amazon, got it delivered, about how to make a TV show. <laughs> uh, and I read it, and, uh, and it taught me a lot. But what I realized as I was reading is that I don't have to remember all this. Mm -hmm. All I have to do is remember where I saw the information yeah, and then flip through it when I need the information. I need to know that it's there and I need to know where it was. And, and that's another nice trick is you don't have to remember everything. You just have to remember where it is. Yeah, especially now with the accessibility of information, yeah. like you can just, you know, take your phone out or something. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, the intelligence from my youth um, was remembering things remembering things wrote like a list of all the economists from the 20th century or uh, remembering what Patrick Minford said about this, that and the other in 1996 and Margaret Thatcher, wrong, anyway. Um, and the dates that these people came to power or the dates that uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were in some kind of awful world dominating meeting. 
um, that killed the world in 1986. But I don't need to remember that anymore because if I remember it was in 1986 and it was Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and that it was about um, nuclear power, look it up on Google and we're away. I don't need to, I don't, we, we don't need today the memory we needed yesterday. What we need is a capacity to remember where the information was and then a capacity to use that information. Now that's what I call smart intelligence. Mm. It's being, a, it's applied intelligence. It's using your intelligence to actually move the needle. And that's great. What an opportunity that's going to be, or it is. Yeah. And, and for sure, I think you mentioned that traveling helped, at least from my point of view, probably helped you a big time with having that kind of also developing that empathy and also uh, kind of this being able to step back because you had to go into different cultures, then you traveled, you know, you know, uh, you did conferences in many places. So probably you, that also gave you like, um, like a different perspective, at yeah. least it did to me. So I imagine for you, it could be similar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, the more varied your horizons, the, 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 the better you're going to perform in my opinion. Um, I mean, I, I think also somebody who tends to go towards that varied horizon, like you do, like I do, is going to be somebody who's more open-minded and is therefore going to learn more easily in inverted commas. Mm. And somebody who tends to stay in the same thing, I would use the example of accountant that I get shouted at again. Um, <laughs> not by you, I keep using <laughs> Accountants it. probably don't watch this podcast or are not going to watch this. And if they do, maybe they will take it. Like no, Right. <laughs> well, I've actually got a friend who did really well at school uh, and he got a first at Cambridge in statistics and complicated maths stuff. Um, and he pushed through with the education that I didn't bother pushing through with. And he was my best friend at the time as a kid. And I met him again five, six years ago. Uh, and he's an actuary. And we're sitting in the pub. He's and I said, who? Actuary. Actuary. What, yeah, that? exactly. I, yeah, exactly. I said, <laughs> that was the, we can repeat the conversation. And he said, I don't really know. You know, you've been doing it for 30 years. And he said, well, actually, I sit in an office in an insurance off in an insurance agency, in an, a big insurance company. And my boss sends me calculations that I have to check that they're mm. right. And then I send them back when I check that they're right or I've corrected them if he's made a mistake. And I say, well, what do these calculations do? He says, oh, I don't know. It's something to do with calculating insurance risk. <laughs> so he's a tiny cog in a really big machine. And all he's being used for is that capacity of his to write complicated maths formulas and he is so bored with his job. <laughs> it's phenomenal how much he hates his job. And that's, that's the thing is he does one thing and he does it incredibly well, but he doesn't have the horizons and he doesn't have an open view. And he's a lovely, lovely guy. And I mean, I wouldn't say he's not open-minded because he goes mountain climbing. So he's obviously, I think he goes to the top of the mountain so he can go like that at the top of the mountain as opposed to being in his office, which I can appreciate. But he got stuck in that. And I don't think it's his natural habitat, as it mm. were. Um, but then once you get stuck in it, you're kind of going down this thing. And you're thinking, well, that's all I'm ever going to do. Yeah, and your vision like narrows and then it's so, so narrow, you can't see anything else. Yeah. But, but speaking of boring, and then we can transition now into, uh, into your kind of uh, area of more expertise. A brilliant though. transition. The boring topic of brand service, is that what you're saying? No, no, no I, I wanted to, my question is, but it, it's actually part of the question is that, you know, kind of looking on the outside, 
it's mm. very interesting for me that someone with your history of what you did, you know, this, uh, you know, playing in a band, creating cartoons and, and then living on Mauritius would finally go into something like brand SERP and, and digital marketing right. and, and focus on search results on Google. So maybe you can intro us like what, um, you know, like what, what are we missing from the story? Right. Like what got you so interested and what's like, what's, what uh, you know got you to to stick with it for so long? Because how long have you been uh, doing it already? Well, I mean, I started with Buran Kuala in 1998. Specs off for Buran Kuala in 1998. Then it all collapsed in 2008, and I was stuck in Mauritius. Uh, I got the company taken away from me. Uh, I lost all my income. I lost uh, the characters. I lost the company. Uh, it was a complete, complete disaster. Uh, and I was in Mauritius with no money and I had to find a way to make money quickly. And so I pitched online to people saying, I built this website up, look at it, it's 10,000 biggest site in the world. If you want to help me do SEO, I'm your man. And I got some work doing that and started working in SEO because it was the most saleable thing I had. Mm. Because I, and I had the site, I mean, I could have said, I make these great animations, but then that's, it's a lot to do with people's taste. They go, I don't like the animation. So you know, and I couldn't do it on my own because I would have needed the team. Uh, or I could say, I write songs. And I was like, we don't want you to write songs. We're not going to pay you to write songs. But if I said, I can push Google traffic to your site, everyone would go, oh, I can see that. That's good. That, make money, so we'll pay you. Um, and so it was actually simply a way to make money in the short term when everything went pear-shaped in Mauritius. And then mm, after a couple of years, managed to move back to France, got the money together to move back to France. Um, and when I turned up in France, because in Mauritius it was all remote work, I was pitching to people in the UK, all my clients were in the UK. Um, so I never had to go and see them. And I never really thought about how to sell to people. And mm -hmm. then I came to Paris and started pitching to people. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, I'll just get, sorry, pitching online. And I thought, well, I'll get the work. And they said, no, you've got to come into our offices and actually meet us. So I would go to the offices and I would talk to them and I'd go, blah, 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 and I'd be really excited. I'd be like, this is gonna be really great. We're gonna do this. We're gonna get this content in place and we're gonna make these amazing structured sites that are gonna that are gonna wow Google and we're gonna bring this traffic in and you're gonna get qualified traffic and they're gonna buy your products, you're gonna convert and wow, blah. and they'd be going, yeah, yeah, and you have this kind of thing going. And I'm exaggerating it once it wasn't <laughs> like that, but um that, that but was you had great energy. <laughs> yeah, I mean I would have this great energy. I think that's the point rather than what I was saying. And people would go, Yeah, I believe in believe in this guy. He's got this energy and I'm sure he's gonna get us that. And I would walk out and I would convert, let's say, fifty percent. And then one day I looked my own name up and I thought I went into Google, I looked it up and I thought, actually, it says, you know, Jason Barnard is a blue dog. <laughs> it doesn't say Jason Barnard's an expert in digital marketing. Mm -hmm. um, so I then thought if I can make it show what I want it to show and I can make it impressive for my job for the thing I've just pitched for when people search my name they will think this is the seal on the deal mm, I and it's true I spent two, two years maybe working to get that brand SERP brand search engine results page what appears when people search my name so that it shows Jason Barnard my site right at the top and then search engine journal SEMrush big companies, big platform, respected in the industry, um, videos from YouTube, uh, all about digital marketing. And then I've got the knowledge panel on the right-hand side that says Jason Barnard used to be a blue dog, he used to be in a band. So it tells my story. 
which it should because the brand SERP is supposed to represent you as a person in, in the case of a person or you as a brand in the case of a brand or you as a music group if it's a music group SERP, search engine results page. Um, but it shows people who were searching my name at the time uh, who I was pitching to, or in fact today when I'm pitching to people, they search my name. And they search my name and they say, he's an expert because he writes for search engines. No, he's on SEMrush all the time. He's got these great videos on all these great channels. Um, and it, 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 it validates who I've been saying I am. And mm -hmm. my conversion rate, let's say it was 50%, now 80%. Wow. Uh, people don't argue about my prices anymore. They say, oh, he's the brand SERP guy and he's impressive in, in, in digital marketing, but I'm still a blue dog and you can still see I'm a blue dog. And that's now funny and interesting. It's a quirk that people like, mm -hmm. but it hasn't taken over the brand SERP, which it did before. So um, what it comes down to is when I was pitching to people, they would then look me up online afterwards. And when what came up was impressive, they bought into the project. So that was the inspiration to go into that direction later and just yeah, like and, and focus well, on in that. fact, I, I did it for two years and I thought, well, actually, I honestly thought this will take me a few months to sort out. And it did. I did okay in a few months with my super duper SEO skills. Then after a couple of years, I thought, actually, we can get better and better and I can control it more and more. And I can uh, use Google as a CMS. Somebody said that to me a few weeks ago. Jason Bar Google is Jason Barnard's CMS. CMS, that's con uh, what's content, content management system. system right? Yeah. Because what appears is pretty much what I want. I'm writing my own Google page. Um, and that's one extreme. Um, but the, the point for me is that I thought it would take me a couple of years to master it once I decided I was going to figure it out. And it's seven years later, and every single day I learn something new. There hasn't been a day gone by in the last seven years when I haven't looked at a brand server and thought, yeah, hadn't thought of that. Is that and what keeps you going with it? Like the, the fact that it's like this kind of ongoing quest and that can never be complete? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it used to be perfecting my own. And it was some clients asked me to help them with theirs, especially clients with problems. If you've got a bad review or a competitor ranking on your website, on your yes. brand SERP. Um, so I can help with that kind of thing. Uh, but that's not the work I prefer. I mean, I like the idea, if you control your brand SERP, then what appears when somebody Googles your name uh, becomes easier to manage over the long term. So if there is bad press or bad reviews, they're much less likely to come up to that first page. And if they do, they're much more easy to get rid of. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm into the idea of proactive management. Control it today so that in the future you don't have these problems. Mm. Um, and, and that doesn't really sell very well because people don't get it until they have a problem, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah. But the reason I'm so enthusiastic, well, there's several reasons, one of which is every single day I learn something new. And I keep saying to people, oh, rich site links, there's an average of five rich site links on brand SERPs. And people go, oh, I don't care. You go, ah, oh, but you will, you will, you will, honest, honest, honest. And it is that thing is, I'm sure, I'm sure this is a great path to be on. And I'm- okay now obsessed by the idea of convincing everybody else to jump on the bandwagon and be on this path with me because it's great and it's fun and it's enjoyable and it's interesting and the other is that the other thing that's really getting me excited is that i've got a collection i collect brand serps i've got seventy thousand brands and people and i'm tracking these brand serps every single month so i see not only 
I've got 10 million brand SERPs in a database. So wow. I've been looking at these and you look at them and you're going, okay, what can I understand from here? And just by looking at them, I have in my brain a, a picture that nobody else has got. Mm -hmm. I find that really interesting. You see, I can now look at a brand server and I say that, 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 and it takes me about three seconds. Whereas seven years ago, I wouldn't have known. Um, two years ago, it would have taken me hours and hours and hours and hours. So it's that kind of ongoing um, appreciation, artistic appreciation, perhaps somewhere down the line on brand serps that I'm developing that I can feel and it feels really nice and it's fun. Uh, and also the statistics, because I did economics, I did statistical analysis. I sort through the database and figure out how many blue links there are on a brand SERP. How many video boxes do you get on a brand SERP? What do you find in knowledge panels? How many site links do you get? All of these things that are on Google's results page, the richer results. How, how much does YouTube dominate video boxes when you see them on Google SERPs? 68%. Yeah. It's lower than you would think. There's an awful lot of news sites. There's an awful lot of Twitter. There's an awful lot of Facebook. When do they come up? When don't they come up? When should you rely on YouTube for your videos? When should you not rely on YouTube for your videos in that context? All of that is phenomenally interesting. And every day I find something that I didn't expect. Um, and the third one is when I talk to people about it, they say, oh, brand SERPs, that's really boring. And then I talk to them about it for 10 minutes. They go, oh, wow, yeah. Oh, that, that's interesting. <laughs> and I love that. It's not what you talk about. It's how you talk about it, right? Yeah, but I'd like also to think that brand SERPs are actually interesting, but I do, I do appreciate that they're only interesting as long as I'm talking about them enthusiastically. <laughs> no, I mean, like for, for me, for someone who knows about digital marketing and some different pieces there, and the obvious question that rises, and I guess it's going to be useful for people watching and listening, is like, so, you know, like the big one known is SEO. Like that's like the... Yeah good old thing that's been there and now is, has fallen out of trend, but used to have golden days. So like, what's the, in a nutshell, what would you say is the difference between like generally SEO, like, you know, some um, marketing agencies or whatever teams just, you know, focusing on, Hey, we will help with your SEO versus a brand SERP. Because for me, it seems like it's very much similar, but probably in your eyes, it's, it's totally different or maybe it isn't. So I'm just curious, like how you look at it. You just asked me the best question. I was trying not to interrupt you because I wanted to get answering it straight away because it's a great question. I love it. Um, number one is SEO isn't difficult. It's really quite simple, but because of the number of things you need to deal with, the number of parameters you need to be looking at, it becomes very complicated very quickly when you're looking at the overall picture. But if you look at a brand SERP, it's very focused. It's a controlled environment about your brand. Mm -hmm. And you can control it relatively easily using very simple SEO tactics, but they're ex the exact same SEO tactics you would use everywhere else. So that's a really good way to learn SEO because if I change my meta title on my, on my homepage, on my site, which is ranking number one, Google then crawls it and it changes in the SERP pretty much immediately. So I can see how it affects. I don't need to wait and I don't need to extrapolate. I can see exactly what it's done. I and then if I try and change the site links that go underneath, I, you've got the homepage and then you've got blue links underneath all coming from that same uh, brand site. I can try and get those to swap around, try and change how Google's presenting them. That's a fairly simple SEO technique that actually helps with all the rest of your SEO as well. And it gives you an insight into how you should be working the rest of your SEO. Um, if you look at the knowledge panel, if you want a knowledge panel, it's about informing Google, it's about educating Google. And that's what SEO is. It's, it's packaging your content for Google 
and informing Google about what you're talking about, what you're offering its users, why you're the most credible or that you are the most credible and that you have the content it needs to deliver to its users. That's all SEO is. And brand SERPs is all about Google will show to your users, your audience, the content that it thinks is the most valuable to them. Mm -hmm. Which means that you can push anything you want onto your brand SERP if you can package it in a way that demonstrates to Google that it's valuable to your audience. Mm. So it's basically, if I want video boxes, Twitter boxes, image boxes, podcast boxes, blue links, descriptions, knowledge panels, whatever you want, every single one of those elements can be affected by SEO. Every single one of those elements can be brought onto the brand SERP. And every one of those, bringing those elements onto your brand SERP is using simple SEO tactics that you don't even need to be a developer to do. So it's a really simple entry into understanding SEO and understanding modern SEO, which isn't the complex uh, technical jungle that it used to be. Oh, it's really? about, no, 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 no. Because a lot of people just, just to kind of interrupt you slightly, because you, maybe you have a really good take there is that a lot of people, I think when you now mention um, the name, uh, seo people think like oh it's you know this thing that's like super complex on one hand to the the rules of the game change uh, a lot so it's very much like you're not in control and then it's it's very uh like it's not sexy and it takes a lot of time um so 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 these are like the objections that i hear from people now so like what what would you say to, to those things I would say all of that was true three years ago. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. Um, the thing is, Google's algorithms are, are no longer written by human beings. They're written by machines. What, what the human beings do is they say to the machines, this is all machine learning. It's basically a machine trying to understand how to, get, how to achieve a goal that a human being has set it. Mm -hmm. So what the human being says is, I want the perfect SERP. I want this SERP to serve this purpose. There you go. You've got to get to their machine. And, it, and it gives them, they give the machine examples of what they consider to be good results. Then they give the machine all the data and they say, figure it out for everything else. So that means that those rules you were talking about no longer exist as such because nobody in the world knows what they are. Only the machine knows what they are. Mm -hmm. Because the human being is simply telling the machine, get to that result. And then when, it, when, when the machine's been working on it for a bit and it started producing these results, and it, it's going, now, now what do you think? The machine, I'm being a machine here. What do you think of my results? And then the human being, Google, will then say, okay, this is right, that's wrong, that's right, that's right, that's wrong, that's right, that's good, almost right, that's good, that's bad, blah, blah, blah. And they do that by using human beings to rate the quality of the results of Google. Mm -hmm. and they use feedback from users on Google and they use data from the SERPs themselves, i.e. how users interact with the SERPs, the results pages. So they then say to the machine, this worked, this didn't. This worked, this didn't. And then the machine goes back and tries to do it again with that new information about what was, what was good and what was bad about what it had done. So every single thing that it takes into consideration um, is something the machine decides about and not the human being, not everything, pretty much everything. And, and, and why that time, makes it better? 
because then you can't say to anybody, oh, I need more links, or I need more structured data, or I need more text, or I need more of this or more of that, uh, because nobody knows what the real answer is. Um, but what you can do is say, Google will keep feeding this machine mistake, 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 as long as the results don't satisfy its users. Uh, and it will keep feeding that machine, great, 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 patting it on the head saying, what a great machine you are, every time it does satisfy the user. So what they're doing is Google people are saying, this is a good result because it brings the solution to the user efficiently and quickly. The best result. The best so then the, the main idea is to focus on the user then. And that's what Google's saying. People are getting really frustrated with them saying, oh, yeah, you just tell us how many links we need. Because that's what we used to in the SEO community. And Google is saying, but you just have to satisfy the user. And they're not doing it because they're horrible people. They're doing it because that's what they're telling the machine. So they don't know what you need to do on a detail-by-detail detail basis. And every single result page is going to be different. So they can't tell you what you need to do for your particular case. So at the end of the day, you need to make sure that this machine that's judging you, basically the, what, what Google is saying is we have our users who are expressing a problem or asking a question. And we want to bring that the best solution or the best answer as quickly as and efficiently as we possibly can. That's their mm. aim. Yeah. That's it. So the number one result, the one that they put in front of the user has to be the best result with the most efficient and qualitatively great, satisfying uh, solution for their user. If you start with that, you're going, okay, that's what they're aiming to do. Now they're saying to the machine, you need to get us that result. Mm -hmm. And that machine needs to understand what it is you're offering. It needs to understand exactly what solution you're offering to whom. So it needs to understand who you are, what you do, and who your audience is. Then, if it's understood you and your competitor, it's saying, well, which one do I put first? Because I've got two that are pretty much the same. Then you say, okay, now you need to, you need to identify, or sorry, you need to um, convince it that you are the most credible out of those two solutions. So that would mm -hmm. be reviews, inbound links, uh, user-generated content on your page, i.e. interaction with users who actually find your content interesting and useful and it, it creates discussion. Or uh, influencers linking to you, all these things that kind of make, make your content look credible. I use the word credible. Google used the word expertise, authority, and trust. Mm -hmm. Just think credible, it needs to look credible. Um, more credible than my competition. So you've got it to understand what you're offering. You've got it to understand that you're a more credible solution to its user's problem or a, more, or a better answer to their question than your competitors. Mm -hmm. Then you need to just make sure that the content you're giving Google is in the correct format. It can deliver that content or it believes you can deliver that content. So in the case where it's showing the answer on the SERP, which would be the case of a feature snippet or perhaps a video that they sometimes now embed, it needs to be able to deliver that content correctly. And that means you just need the right player for the video in your page. It just needs to be a player that Google can pick up and put in the surf and it's very simple. YouTube, you put your embed link in and you're away and it's not, it's not complicated. Um, or when the user comes to your site, if Google sends the users through to your site, Google has to be convinced that you can deliver that content correctly. Mm. And that just means having a decent site that isn't really slow. Um, and that you can use on a mobile device. I mean, that's, that's the minimum you would want for your user anyway. Google's asking you for the minimum you would want for your user anyway. Yeah. So if you can get it to understand that you provide a, the, you provide a relevant solution to the specific question that's just been asked, and remembering there are billions of questions asked every day, 
and you can convince it that yours is the most credible solution and you can demonstrate to it that you can deliver that solution, you've won the game. And it really isn't difficult. I mean, it, it, it's not that technical game we were playing before. It's a very different game and it is focused on the user. And the thing about brand SERPs, and this wraps it up really nicely, is if you don't have video boxes on your brand SERP, like when somebody searches your brand name, if there aren't the video boxes, then your video strategy is awful. Mm -hmm. It's not valuable to your users. Google can't see the value. It's never going to show you videos in, a different, in, in, in the wider world. So if you sort that out, then you sort out your Twitter boxes because you want the Twitter boxes. You need a decent Twitter strategy for that. Then you're starting to build a proper content strategy. Yeah. So if you start with your brand SERP, you're immediately building a better content strategy, which will then feed into your SEO without you even doing anything extra. Mm. But the big thing for me, like the way you were talking about it is that... Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, but that <laughs> it's also that like you, the way you look at it is, is through, through like um, many like fundamental principles, like what, you know, what lies under it. And most people, you know, are focusing on the different tactics. Uh, and now those, you are basically saying that those, you know, small little tactics, they don't work as well because it's harder to like hack the algorithm. Uh, I think it's similar what's happening on YouTube. Mm. And then, and then I think what's happening, at least that's my understanding that people say, okay, then this doesn't work, but I think, uh, the way to make it work and, and then kind of sw switch your perspective is that you have to kind of understand it on one fundamental level, and then you can create as many tactics and strategies as you want. But the way you explain it is that you basically have to understand like what's, what's under is how this all machine works. And then, you know, what, what are the like basic necessities for you to, to right. rank? And then you can focus on those and then those like small tactics that work now, but maybe don't work in two weeks from now. You can do them, but these are just like kind of um, bonuses in a way. Yeah, oh, I like that. You'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, but you don't need to understand how the machine works. There's no point even trying. I just explained it basically to say the machine is trying to get, or the, the whole aim of Google is to get the machine to provide the best answer or solution to its user as possible in every single circumstance. Mm -hmm. That's all, and that's what they're aiming to do. So there's no point now in trying to understand how the machine works because you never will, because not even Google understands how it works. In no, I, I don't mean like the machine, like uh, literally, but in a way that, yeah. that okay, the, 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 the way Google works now is that, okay, it's AI and the way what they want, their goal is to you know, deliver the best content, so then, your 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 role is to provide kind of in a way the best content make sure it's congruent and make sure there's its credibility so like i'm talking about this, yeah. this kind of so yeah and i was just trying to clarify that because for me uh, I, I i think that needs to be really really clear there's no point in trying to understand the machine sorry i was mm -hmm. maybe repeating what you'd already said and i was uh, un unhelpful but no that's good um, that's good uh, one, one thing that you did say is bonus and i'd like to focus on the word bonus for a moment google is the bonus Google isn't the target. Mm -hmm. Your users are the target. What you should be doing, in my opinion, is creating content on the platforms, in the format that your audience is using, that's useful and helpful and valuable to your audience on those other platforms, be it YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Medium, uh, Quora. Um, what, what else would there be? I mean, oh, um, Reddit. Even things like Crunchbase, Reddit, but even something like Crunchbase, which is a source of information for B2B. If you create content on Crunchbase, it will help Google. Yeah. 
but it will help Google secondarily to helping your user or your audience who is B2B business people. But if we come back and you're saying, okay, I've created this great video for YouTube, for example, or uh, a great post on Facebook. If I can make that valuable, useful and for my audience and make it helpful to my business, move my business forward a little bit, it's already paid for itself. Mm-hmm. Then what I need to do is take that content and package it for Google for that bonus. I see. And if you approach it from that point of view, you're making content for your audience, pushing it out to your audience, making the value of that content for yourself already without Google, and then saying, how do I package it for Google so that I can get a bonus for it? Mm-hmm. And Google, I mean, Google are happy with that. That's absolutely not a problem. And, and the packaging for Google, and that's what I talk about with understanding, credibility, deliverability, that's the packaging. Mm. And, that, and, and, and that, would, that would be my content strategy today. Or it is my content strategy today for all my clients. We think of the platforms first. We think of the users first. So we say, okay, which platform are they hanging out on? We'll focus on that first. We'll create this content, we'll get them engaged, we'll get the, the audience uh, into all this. And at the same time, we will also post it to our site in a different format. For example, we'll do a YouTube video with um, just timings on it on the YouTube channel. And then we'll put a whole transcript of that video on our website. That gives Google two choices. And it gives us two potential possibilities to appear in Google, but the video is already paid for itself on YouTube, so we don't actually need the Google payback, as it were. Um, and so packaging, when I say packaging, I just mean, if you think about understanding, if I do a transcript, it understands the video, that's done, finished. Credibility, get some links and get your, your audience engaging with it. it. Google will see that, YouTube is part of it. If people are watching it and liking it and commenting on it on YouTube, it will see that credibility. If you can get your peers to talk about it, it can see that credibility too. If you can get your audience talking about it on social media and linking back to it, that's credibility too. Mm. Then deliverability, all you need, YouTube looks after the deliverability when you've embedded it in your site. All you need is a site that loads within five seconds. It doesn't have to be a super fast site. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be mobile compatible because most people or a lot of people are on mobile today. So that's your deliverability. I mean, I haven't said anything complicated and I haven't even mentioned the word code. Yeah. Any WordPress site with Gutenberg blocks, if you know WordPress, big CMS, great, great thing to use. Google loves it because it's 30% of the web. So Google understands how WordPress is presented. So you've already got an advantage if you use WordPress because it dominates. If you use Yoast as a plugin, it does most of the technical stuff for you. You don't need to worry about it. Yoast is 50% of the WordPress. So that's 15% of the web for Google is exactly the same. It's WordPress plus Yoast. So you're already in the majority of of the web and you kind of think, oh yeah, I don't want to be in the monitor. I want to be different. Be different with your design. Be different with your content. (laughs) Because Google likes things that are standardized and Yoast plus WordPress is standardized and Google absolutely loves it because it makes it more deliverable, understandable. Mm. And also to a certain extent credible, but it's really the deliverability and the understandability of it. Um, And so kind of from that point, you're saying, if I've got a WordPress site, which is responsive, and I haven't messed with it too much by changing the theme, and getting somebody to change absolutely everything in it, because I actually want all the bells and whistles. Don't go for the bells and whistles. Go for something simple and efficient and make the difference with the design and the content. Because then you're on, you've already got understanding and deliverability sold. It's done. It's finished. You don't have to think about it. 
then you can go out and you say credibility, right, I need reviews, I need users uh, interacting on my site, I need users linking into it, I need peers, I'm linking back to it or talking about it, talking about my content. Uh, I mean, why do I say the brand SERP guy all the time? Because people refer to it all the time because that then identifies me as the brand SERP guy and Google understands that when you said the brand SERP guy, I don't need the link. Mm -hmm. It knows you're talking about me because I've banged it home to everybody all the time. So you've got this thing of you don't need links anymore. You need mentions. Mm -hmm. Google understands it's talk that people are talking about you. So, sorry, I'm getting a bit overexcited, but it is a, a, an interesting concept that a lot of the understanding and deliverability are dealt with by WordPress and Yoast, leaving you only really the credibility to deal with. And it makes the content creation itself and thinking about your audience and where they're hanging out and where they will find value from this content as the single most important thing of your SEO strategy, with, with, which is what it should be. Mm. I love how you broke it down to actually like some simple. Uh, yeah, I just made that up, by the way. It's <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Uh, to like simple steps, because, you know, that's also shows that how, how much I think you, you, you know about it because I've thought about it far too much, but if I may pay you a compliment, what you did was bring the questions through to allow me to say that or to prompt me to say that. And as mm. I said, I'd never said that before. And that's oh. a sign of a great interviewer. If I might be a, a little bit, um, um, happy to hear. <laughs> but, it, but it is. And every now and then I do an interview like this and I end up saying something and I think, wow, yeah, that's clear. That's straight. And it's easy to understand. And that was a moment. No, and that, that's why I think uh, these kind of discussions, even though, you know, some people say like, oh, maybe it's too long or whatever. But I think, you know, even though someone might be like you, an expert in SEO, it's it's also some things are in your head, you're thinking about it. And sometimes you need to like articulate it, right? Like with someone else to really say it. And then you're like, oh, that actually makes sense. Or, oh, maybe I didn't know fully and then I ask you more questions and then it clarifies. So in a way also like it helps you get you answers to some and you get better what you do. Also like talking about it, but yeah. in a way where it's like a two-way conversation, not just, you know, you talking to the public because that that's good for sharing, but it's not, it's not so good for like actually say ironing out your ideas you know, your, your yeah. knowledge and kind of simplifying it. Yeah. No, 100%. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I actually just wrote a, a, um, an article for Search Engine Journal about understanding credibility and deliverability. Uh, and it was published Friday. And the SEO industry as a whole doesn't say what I'm just saying now. It's new for the SEO industry as well as a concept. So I'm not saying the SEO industry doesn't understand what I'm saying. I'm saying that they haven't thought of it in this manner. And mm. it's been a really big success. And people are now saying to me, oh, can you explain more about this? Because it's so simple. And it makes SEO so much easier for everybody else to understand. And it makes SEO obviously less scary. And it makes SEO more a part of a larger, wider digital marketing content strategy. Mm. Um, and I think, I think that that's also something that really excites me. And if you say, what makes you get up in the morning? For example, me in my little corner in Paris, being able to change something for some people in terms of kind of how they perceive this and, and, and how comfortable they feel. I mean, what I see with my clients is after a, uh, a coaching session, they say, yeah, that makes total sense. And when they say that, you go, that's a good thing. That means we're on the right track. Yeah. That means I've understood what it is your business needs to do for Google. 
Um, and it isn't technical stuff. It's how we're going to organize our content strategy, given what you already have, the resources you have moving forwards, and what your priorities are within your own business. And if we can nail that, and then tag Google on, as you said, as the bonus at the end, it makes total sense. And it's so much less scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's like follow the breadcrumbs and kind of makes all logical sense. Oh, you're good at this. I like that. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it makes sense, the question, because one that I kind of wanted to ask you regarding the SEO industry and your take on it, but maybe you answer it. If so, just tell me. But I just wanted to know maybe like, what's like one biggest, uh, if you already haven't uh, mentioned it, like what's one biggest thing? not misconception, but like one, something that you believe in when it comes to the SEO and that word, but most people in that space like would disagree with you, you with, like, um, or you disagree with most people. Like what's this like one main thing that you would see that you have a different, totally different like opinion on, different view or different kind of idea? Well, well I have, uh, I, I basically, I think I've got four different things that I, I'm, really keen on brand SERPs. The SEO industry tells me brand SERPs, they're really easy. I know all about them. I deal with them all the time. Um, and I think they're underestimating it. So that would be the first thing I think the SEO industry hasn't understood about what I'm talking about is that they underestimate the power and the intricacy of brand SERPs. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two is I wrote an article last year, Darwinism in Search, and it's about how these different rich elements, SERP features get onto the pages of Google um, and it's Darwinism and it's really, really, really cool. And it's another really easy way to, to visualize and understand how Google's functioning today. Um, and I thought it would catch on really quickly and it hasn't. Um, hmm. And it, it's one of the, 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 a guy called Gary Ilyash from Google, who's one of the, um, one of the spokespeople for Google who actually explained, but people have been saying, oh, it's Jason Barnard's theory. You can't, it's not, it's what, Gary Ilyash explained that they explained to their engineers. So all I've done is basically repeated what he told me. Mm -hmm. Then I went and did interviews with team leads at Bing, uh, which is Microsoft's search engine. And they confirmed that it works exactly the same way at Bing. So we have these two major search engines that work in the same way and it's Darwinism. It's cheated Darwinism because obviously they're money-making machines and they can't just leave everything to survival of the fittest. But, but in what way you mean Darwinism in, in that context? Well, uh, you have the Blue Link algorithm, which is the fundamental algorithm, and it, it ranks all the all the what I call the Blue Link algorithm. It ranks web pages by uh, the content of those web pages in relation to the query the user has um, made, the the problem they're expressing or the question they've asked. Then, the video algorithm comes into play, and it will say, "Okay, I've got these videos, and these videos are really, really good," and so it will put in a bid. They call them bids, and it's not a monetary bid. It's a bid of value to the user. Mm. And if the bid of the videos is higher than the bid of the top blue link, the video's got a place. Oh, I see. Then the image algorithm comes in, and they're all built on the same data set, i.e. what Google has collected from websites, and the same basic algorithms. They're adaptations of the same set of algorithms that the blue link algorithm works on it's all interconnected so the image algorithm comes on it says i've got a bid and it's going oh that's not good enough so you're not getting a place then feature snippet twitter boxes podcast boxes all of these different elements um and basically so if they can prove or if they can make a bid that shows that they bring more value to the user in the circumstances the user finds themselves 
in, i.e. the question they have asked, the problem they have expressed, and the platform they are on, i.e. device, sorry, they are on, and the geolocation and the language and their, their search history, all of this comes into play. Mm -hmm. uh, they get a place. So it's Darwinism, i.e. it's the most appropriate, it's the fittest and it will get a place. But then I talked to a guy called Nathan Chalmers at Bing who, brought, who blew my mind because he said, oh, there's a whole page algorithm too. A page? A whole page algorithm. Whole page. genius. And it's so obvious when he says it to you as well. And so you've got these, all these elements and you've, so the, the, the algorithm themselves is that these are the 10 best blue links, but we're going to put videos, Twitter boxes and images. So those go off the bottom. So we've lost those three blue links. Here we go. That's your result. But he says, no, no, no. We then have another algorithm that looks at that and says, well, from past experience, we know that videos don't satisfy the user for this type of query. Mm. So even though they won their place through Darwinistic survival of the fittest, we're going to throw you out anyway. But mm, we do know that the knowledge panel, for example, is often useful to users. So we're going to bring in the knowledge panel, even though it didn't appear to have enough value to the user, which allows it to bring in new elements and get rid of old elements and adapt the SERP, the results page, um, according to real user data. Now, here's a trick. When SEOs ask the people at Google, do you use click-through data? I do you use user behavior on Google's pages for ranking. They say, no. Hmm. And everyone goes, okay, but we don't believe you, but they don't believe them. The fact is they don't use it for ranking. They use it in the whole page algorithm. So it's not technically used for ranking, so they're not lying. But it is used to sort the wood from the chaff, as we say in English. Hmm to redesign the, the, the results page according to user behavior in the past and machine learning understood probable user behavior in the given case. And that's mm. really important is it doesn't have to have seen the query before. It can evaluate whether or not this particular element will help or not according to the past experience, the massive data these machines are working on. So once again, we're in machine learning. It isn't somebody pressing a button saying, we don't want videos. It's a machine who's being given the reward of being told how terribly good and clever it is, hmm. making these decisions based on the feedback that the people from Google and from Microsoft are giving that machine about the success and failure of its previous actions which is genius and it's so simple. And it, I mean, it sounds, but listen back to that little, ch little chunk, but it's incredibly important and it does make it much easier for me at least to approach all this and say, okay, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to provide the most appropriate content to satisfy Google's user who is potentially my audience. And there's a very important point. Google's your users are not your users. Your audience is a subset of Google's users, and yeah. you only realistically want to apply, uh, appeal to the subset of Google's audience, uh, sorry, Google's users who are truly your audience. Mm -hmm. And if you bear that in mind, focus on your user, bring value to your user, and you'll win the game. And that's a great, I think, uh, segue to the last topic. We, we can end the SEO talk, but I think, um, you know, if someone is, is listening to this, he's gonna be taking notes. And now yeah. I think some maybe light bulbs are gonna shine and be like, hmm, now I, now I get this. Now I, it's not so complex and I can approach it more like strategically 
and and um, and maybe even figure it out myself. So maybe I can pay someone, but maybe I don't have to because now I see that it's it's not as complex. Well, as you said, if you pay somebody else to help with your SEO, here's a little hint: uh, is if it, if if whatever they're doing doesn't serve one or more of understanding credibility or deliverability, they're doing something that isn't going to help. Mm. So basically, it's an easy way for you to say which one does it serve, and if they can't make a decent argument for it serving one or more of those pillars, tell them they're getting it wrong. Mm, that's a good tip. That's a good tip. Which which actually gives you more control. I mean, uh, we used to be scared of developers because we didn't know how to code. Now we've got things like WordPress and Yoast. We don't need the developers so much, which they probably don't like. But uh, <laughs> it, it means we don't need to confront them so much. We don't need to understand so much. Now we're scared of SEOs because they're now coming and saying, oh, you need links, you need this, you need that, you need schema markup. You do need schema markup, but Yoast does it for you, so why bother thinking about it? Um, and, and you can actually get rid of that barrier once again by saying something simple, which is, as a marketer, I want Google to understand what I'm offering. I want it to believe I'm credible, and I want it to understand that it or I can deliver this content mm -hmm. and satisfy its user's question or their problem. And if the SEO cannot argue convincingly that what he or she is doing is going to serve one or more of these aims, help Google in one of these manners, don't do it. That's a good, uh, great advice. Great advice. Um, so I guess the last thing that uh, I wanted to 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 ask you and, and talk about is like you're um, kind of you're you're running a podcast now. Yeah and your transition because uh, I think I read it or heard it somewhere that you turned from a presenter of ideas to the world and hoping that people will, will like them to, to, a to a host pulling ideas from people. Uh, so I guess I I'm curious, like what, uh, what made you go into that space? Like, uh, you know, start a podcast and, and make that transition from, from this, this right. to this and, and what keeps you, you know, kind of going. Uh, like what's 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 the motivation behind it? Well, um, well, interesting enough, actually, that the uh, I talked to the guys at, at Yoast. They invited me over to be part of their academy, uh, not nice. as a student, Congrats. as a teacher. <laughs> I, I hasten to add. And we were having a beer, and uh, one of them just turned around to me. It was actually Yoast himself, and said, "Where have you come from? Nobody had heard of Jason Barnard a year ago." And now you're everywhere and you're one of the leading experts in the world in SEO. Where did you come from and why did we never hear about you before? Um, and the reason was because of the disaster with the blue dog and the yellow koala in Mauritius, I have spent or I had spent over 10 years trying to pay off the debts and get myself back on my feet. Mm. So I focused 100% on just doing the work. Uh, and then two and a half years ago, I found myself in a situation where the debts were paid off and I could actually start doing other things again uh, that weren't making money. And I asked a guy called Anton uh, Schulke from SEMrush if I could do a series because I was really interested in hosting a series about answer engine optimization. And I thought, I'm so clever. I'm going to host this series and it's going to be 15 webinars in 15 weeks. And I'm going to explain to the world about my theory. And I'm going to get 50 experts on to all just agree with me, basically. <laughs> this, was, this was me being very naive and thinking I was smarter than the rest of the world put together. And he agreed to do it, which was wonderful and really generous of him. And we got 50 guests on. And about after two episodes, I was going, hmm, 
Number one, I don't understand half as much as I thought I understood. Number two, my theory doesn't fly as high as I thought it was. Number three, I need these people because I'm not going to get through this if they don't actually contribute <laughs> an awful lot to it. So I did this 15 uh, episode webinar series and learned a phenomenal amount from incredibly kind people, very generous people. And you'll find in the SEO industry, digital marketing industry as a wider description of it, immense immense uh, kindness empathy and desire to share um, it's not a scary place at all it's really 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 nice people who really want to help other people uh, and share their knowledge and that series at the end of it i just thought i know so much more than i did at the start of it what can i do to carry that idea on which is basically learning from asking people questions <laughs> people who really know what they're talking about and i just said right i'm gonna i became a digital nomad um, packed up my stuff gave the flat away um, and started, went, went, started going to conferences around the world a year and a half ago and interviewed people. I basically, I found people having interesting conversations, then grabbed one of them and said, do an interview, please. Mm. And I, I basically, one guy, this guy called Brad Geddes, uh, he was talking about um, why Bing will never shut down, why Microsoft will continue with Bing even if it loses money. And I said, oh, shut up. And he looked really offended. And I thought, oh, I didn't mean quite like that. I just meant, please don't say any more because if you say some more, I won't be able to um, then ask you the questions and be surprised and interested and intrigued by your answers. <laughs> um, and I did the interview with him and it was really good. And I've done 160 interviews now and it's been an incredible experience because each and every one of them, I'm asking people who know boatloads about their topic and are really enthusiastic about their topic to explain to me the things I don't understand about their topic, which probably means that most people don't understand about their topic and they do it really 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 uh well some of them are a bit complicated in their explanation so what i then do is summarize it in a simpler manner uh some of them really do nail it and we end up with these great conversations uh, like this conversation but where well not but where, where where people are sharing incredible insights that you didn't expect into a topic you didn't know enough about and making it much less scary and it's I've learned more in the last two years of doing that than I did in the 10 previous years working for different clients on different projects. Um, and it's amazing just by asking people. Mm. You learn it's else. mostly SEO focused or um, the, the guests, like are they mostly in digital marketing or, or what? Because you say it, it, different topics. So like what? It's all digital marketing, but then marketing, all marketing to some extent is now partially a bit digital or, or by offshoot digital. Um, everything ends up online at some point in the Western world, at least. Um, it was very SEO. The first year was incredibly SEO. So the first 120 episodes are focused on SEO with a digital marketing outlook. Uh, and the last six months, I've tried to get more marketers on. Um, but so far, some have been great. But a lot of it for me is um, not actually particularly helpful information. Okay. It, it's not very actionable. Uh, you mean I'm the interviews or? Yeah, I mean, uh, I won't name names, but uh, the last six months I've had about half marketers and influencers and half um, digital marketing, SEO, Google related stuff. Um, and I can't help but be disappointed by the insights I've had from the people from the marketing side of things. And it might be that I've just chosen the wrong people. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's partially also because at least that's my personal opinion from being in this space is that, um, you know, people like you are, I would say, 
more like uh, a quite rare occurrence. Like most people in that space are, you know, people who've been there like two years, one year, three years. They're maybe like my age or something like that. They usually think they know everything, mm. but they actually don't know. They usually say what they are about is the most important thing, but they don't have like the bigger because they haven't been in, you know, in it, in the trenches for long enough. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but just like, mm. like there is, I think maybe too much confidence, uh, because maybe, um, of, you know, the age and that it's something new and there's not enough people like you to balance things out. Like people all there, people mm -hmm. who have been doing something for 20 years. Um, and maybe that skews that at least that's from my perspective that looks like it. But... No, but it, it, it's interesting what you're saying. Well, I think kind of that once again, the lack of empathy for the person asking the questions that they're thinking, what, what, what do I want to say? And I've noticed that I mean, it's not, actually, that's not just the marketing guys, people. It's, it's, it's everybody. Some, some guests you can see, they're just thinking, how can I say what I want to say? So they're not actually listening to the questions at all. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, the conversation is about flowing backwards and forwards. And at some point you're going to get what you wanted to say in there. And, and, and they fail to stand back and say, what am I actually providing? as opposed to what am I getting? I mean, they're thinking, I'm getting my message across. Yeah. Actually, how can I help the people who are watching this? And how can I help this presenter make this a better show? But also, I mean, from my point of view, when I'm interviewing people, I would hope they would think, what can I teach Jason that he didn't already know? Mm. Yeah, because if you can teach Jason, then you can probably teach all the people listening. <laughs> that's uh, not what I meant, but yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, uh, that, that's kind of partially true, right? Like, if they can, if someone can have a mindset like, oh, I'm going to teach or tell something to this guy or share something that is going to be really, like, new or interesting to the host, then it's most likely going to be really you know, insightful to the people listening to the show. Too, 100%. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, my podcast has got a, a good lis listenership and, and most of all, a very um, faithful listenership. Um, and I think probably like yours, a lot of the listenership or the faithfulness of that listenership is because they know it's always going to be an enjoyable conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a very enjoyable conversation. I have enjoyable conversations with my guests and I think that's a phenomenally important part, as you said earlier on. Um, it's, it's how people feel about what's been said that's incredibly important. Uh, the message underneath is obviously very important too, but if, if you can get people to feel something that they've, they've, they've been in nice company, let's say, for the last two hours, I think it now is, um, yep. then you've won the game. And if they get useful information as well, well, like Google, that's a bonus. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I think podcasts, I don't know what's your opinion about podcasts, but for me, it's like this beautiful thing that just came kind of out of nowhere um i mean it's 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 not like revolutionary in a way that it suddenly popped because it was just slowly you know brewing and then just kind of raised mm. to the top but it's just got this beautiful you know i don't know, like idea behind it it's just um like you can do so many things with it it's it's very like independent and and you can have those long conversations you can connect with people especially in these times where uh, you know, yeah. like the, the virus, people don't meet as much and you can kind of, as you said, like, and the people listening for the people listening, they can, you can, they can kind of just be in the room with you and the two people are talking. And that's, that's what I usually love about like the best podcasts I, I watch, like Joe Rogan or something. It's like, you know, you just sit there, you pull it up and, you know, you just like 
them talking for a couple hours and you feel like you're just a person like sitting in the same room and listening on the conversation. Maybe you can't say anything, but it's still, uh, I don't know, it's, sure. just, it's just great. to. to... No, really, I mean, I, I've never done a two-hour podcast before, so. Mm. How long was good? <laughs> well, it, it was, it was I, I mean, it's now, yeah, it's, we, it, it's a little over two hours, is it, I think now? But uh, I would have been scared if I thought it was going to be two hours right off the bat. Because I think, you know, I haven't got that much to say. Um, turns out I've got probably more than that to say. I just uh, <laughs> didn't know it. Um, didn't but, know. <laughs> but just the idea of having a two-hour conversation filmed and anybody watching a two-hour conversation, if anyone's made it this far, congratulations. That's a major achievement. Um, yeah, I mean, anything over an hour, you kind of think, isn't that getting a bit long? But maybe not. Maybe, maybe I've just not thought about, about it this way before. Mm. We'll see. That's that's also part of my experiment. But I think there is, uh, you know, there's a few people out there in the space that made it big, like Joe Rogan, but not just him, who have proven that there is a need for for you know the long uh, conversation too. It's not the end be all, but oh. people enjoy it. Yeah, and no, I mean, sure, hundred percent. I mean, sorry, I'm not saying this is a bad format. I, it's kind of like um, it's easy to keep people's attention for twenty minutes or thirty minutes. Uh, up to an hour, yeah, okay. When when you get to two hours, you, you're 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 getting somebody to commit quite a big chunk of their life to to sitting and listening to you. So I think the the, the weight on your shoulders is saying uh, for to do two hours, it has to be uh, consistently uh, interesting, enjoyable, and valuable all at the same time. And that's that's a big challenge you've set yourself there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but oh, yeah. yeah, but before we click like the, you know, stop record button, um, then, uh, maybe you have some like last thoughts, uh, meaning, uh, you can one say about like where people can find you, but also maybe say something that I haven't asked you about and you still have it on your mind, you know, sometimes happens right. and you just want to kind of <laughs> let go of it, uh, share like your last thoughts and then, you know, where can people find you and then we can kind of wrap this okay. up. Right, well, uh, you can find me on Twitter, Jason M. Barnard. You can find me on LinkedIn, Jason M. Barnard. You can find me by searching my own name, Jason Barnard on Google, and you'll see my amazingly wonderful brand surf, and you'll see my life story <laughs> thrown before you by Google. Uh, so that's, I mean, the easiest way to find me is to search for my name. That that's, uh, should be a given, in fact, and uh, I never really think about saying that. Uh, and I'll actually end with one thing which I really like, is one thing I learned, a word I, that we have in French, is lagnac and it's a word that really 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 makes sense to me uh, and it's it's a bit like the american word drive but without mm. the commercial pushy uh, disagreeable uh, aspect that i find the word i've got drive you know uh, that that lagnac is a positive desire to move the needle mm. and it's what when you get up in the morning somebody's got lagnac is somebody who's going right what are we going to do today mm. that's me and and france uh, is is my spiritual home and in fact now i'm french so it's my home um probably from the beginning because i quickly cottoned on to the fact that the word lagnac just describes me <laughs> well, that's i guess a, a perfect a perfect summary and let's hope that other people can find the lagnac in themselves <laughs> so they can achieve uh, the things they want in life uh, like you did and try oh, yeah. different things, fail, 
and move forward every day, waking up and uh, just kind of confronting what's in front of you instead of giving up. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. I love that. So uh, merci beaucoup, Jason. <laughs> just a show of my French. And uh, it was lovely. Uh, two more than two hours conversation. I hope people learned and, uh, you know, about SEO, but also took some takeaways from your story about, you know, like from your uh, music times uh, to creating the TV cartoon to then living on Mauritius and, and hiring people and working there. Uh, I think there's plenty of takeaways. So thanks yeah. again. Well, I, I learned a lot from my own story. So uh, hopefully, yeah, other people can take stuff away. So thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. <laughs>